Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer. Chapter 3. This is how you spell climbing. So I kind of saw the sport go from something where people knew nothing about climbing and they would say, you know, are you a rock collector? And I'm, no, no, I'm a rock climber. So in other words, I started when people didn't even know what rock climbing was. Randy Lovett is probably one of the most underappreciated climbers in America because I think he might be the only person to have put up 514 Sport First Ascents, 514 Trad First Ascents, and A5 Big Wall First Ascents on El Cap in, in Yosemite. So, I mean, basically, he has climbed at an elite level across every discipline of the sport. And he base jumps, and he big wave surfs, and he's a pilot. I mean, he's just, he, he's like, uh, you know, uh, who's the, uh, I was like, not Jason Bourne, who's the freaking... Uh, you know, the spy. Uh, How am I blanking on the whole freaking... James Bond? Yeah, James Bond. I'm like, Jesus <laughs> okay. Christ, I just couldn't think of James Bond. I was like, all I can think of is Randy Levitt. Today, we are picking up 50 miles to the south of Red Rock, where we left off in Chapter 2. It's the wide-open Mojave Desert near the California-Nevada border. Clark Mountain was something that I had seen from the air going over uh, commercial flights, you know, just regular airliner flights. And if you got on the right, the correct seat of the airplane, you would see it at certain times. And I'd seen this thing. And then I realized that it was the same thing I saw from the freeway, uh, the 15 freeway going from California to Nevada. At certain times of the day, I would notice large shadows. And so if you're seeing an east facing cliff that has large shadows in the morning, you know that there's some seriously overhanging rock up there. It's the 1990s. Randy lives in Southern California. And like Joanne in chapter two, he's totally passionate about developing new routes. He sees this cliff from the air, makes a mental note, and then drives out to it with some friends to try and find it. When you get to the base of Jumbo Love, it looks just blank. The rock is uh, white and it looks featureless. And I, I thought, wow, it's just too bad there's no handholds. And then I put my hands on the rock and they literally were just disappearing in giant jugs that I didn't even see standing right in front of them because the rock is so white. And uh, that was the start of it. I just, it was just an awe-inspiring moment that that cliff was something that hadn't been climbed at or discovered. It was right in front of everyone. It was jaw-dropping how incredible it looked. So Randy decides to go bolt it. He hikes the top, he propels in. And because it's so overhanging, he's got to swing in like a kid at the park on the swing set. He hooks a little edge or hole in the rock with a hook and then pulls himself in so he can drill a bolt. And he keeps repeating that process. And all the while, he's trying to imagine what it would be like to climb this route. Where should the bolt be? You know, what hole you'd be hanging off of when you clip the rope in? I would always start with the king line that I would see. And Jumbo Love was the really obvious king line, even though it's not full of features that make it real obvious. The whole time I was exploring the route and, and putting the bolts in, I was just mesmerized by how rad it was and how difficult. And like each section looked like a V8 boulder problem or V10 or whatever, but I just, I, I knew it was above my grade. I, I got down after looking at that and saying, that is 515. What Randy was looking at would one day be the hardest route in the world. Jumbo Love 515B. 
Randy bolted the 250-foot route as three pitches, thinking that anyone who would have a chance of doing it would need to divide it up. I'm kind of your basic selfish climber like most climbers are. It's kind of a, a selfish sport in a sense that you're really not solving any of the world's problems, but you are uh, doing something that feels really good. It's a really healthy thing. And, uh, but, you know, it's not, it's not curing cancer or volunteering in a hospital or something. But, but it, as far as the sport itself, you know, to see that line, to bolt it, to recognize that I couldn't do it, I, I knew that there was, it was a contribution. I knew that it was a step forward. I just loved it. You know, I didn't know that the, the route that I would be most famous for bolting was the one that I would have never climbed. <laughs> I never envisioned that Sharma was going to come along and do it in one pitch. I mean, that's like taking a futuristic dream you have and someone putting it on steroids. Chris Sharma was amongst the first rock climbers known purely for his athleticism. His presence was felt everywhere in climbing. Throughout season one of Climbing Gold, we were talking about how climbing has evolved from a completely fringe pursuit into a lifestyle, into an Olympic sport and a multi-million dollar business. Timing, cultural trends, new gear, they've all played their part in the growth of climbing. But sometimes there's also a generational talent who comes along and blows the whole thing wide open. Everywhere I went climbing, there was a problem named Sharma's Red or Sharma's Roof or Sharma's Traverse or, you know, literally every climbing area on the West Coast has the Sharma problem. And it's always the area test piece. It's always the hard one. Today, a scrawny kid from Santa Cruz becomes climbing's first bonafide phenom and makes climbing cool. We are talking with Chris Sharma and we get a little help from Tommy Caldwell and Beth Rodden. Sometimes, climbing can just speak louder than words. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. And this is Climbing Gold. Barcelona, April 2020. Lockdown. You know, I grew up in Santa Cruz on the beach. My dad was a surfer. Uh, I grew up surfing. I can look back and that age 12 was like, it wasn't an easy social time. So this is the early 90s. And like so many of us in our early teenage years, Chris was struggling to fit in. I went from a really tiny private school up in the Santa Cruz mountains where we had like six or 10 people in our class. And it was a, a school founded by uh, Yogi Baba Haridas. So that's where like, my family studied with, with Baba Haridas. And that's why my last name is Sanskrit. Starting a public school in Santa Cruz. So I was very much in a different world, different community. And then going into the community of just like public school, um, you know, all the cliques and kids at that age, I think can be really nasty to each other. So I think it was just a difficult time to fit in really thankful that I found climbing at that same time that, that helped me see very clearly the direction that I wanted to go. Right. How did you get into it? I think I saw, I think I saw K2 and cliffhanger. And those were like films that really inspired me. I was like, that looked freaking amazing. You know, when, when I saw that. And uh, of course I was always into climbing trees and everything like that. So Chris's mom takes him to city rock in Berkeley. And my mom, she took me up there and, 
love at first sight, you know? If you've never heard of those movies, we probably don't blame you. <laughs> they kind of date us. There are these action flicks that are just over the top. Like, uh, it's weird to even have to explain that. I had always been like an athletic kid, but never really found my niche. Of course, all the traditional team sports, they, none of those were my thing. And then, you know, being from Santa Cruz, like surfing, skateboarding, I, I did all those things, but I was never very good at that stuff. And so when climbing, when I tried that, it was like everything clicked. The interesting thing about my story is like climbing gyms were just beginning to pop up in, in the US or I guess around the world, right? So I was kind of the one of the first talented kids to, to come into the sport, specifically who started climbing in a gym. I started when I was 12, I guess maybe 12 and a half. I think by the time I was 13, like I was climbing 513. Um, and then by the time I was 14, I was climbing 514. And I think that same year I won the national championship for adults and everything. And that's when I met Tommy as well. I've talked a lot about climbing um, in recent years, but almost not at all about uh, that time with Chris. The first time I met Chris was at a competition in um, Colorado Springs. He was probably 14 years old. I was like 16. He was super skinny, a little bit nerdy. I remember him telling me that he was just recovering from breaking his hand from punching a kid in the back of the head. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, oh man, this kid's just like kind of a punk, like not at all the Chris Sharma that we think of today. What was clear right from the start was that Chris was freakishly strong but still clearly a work in progress. He could like dangle from one digit of one finger on like a one finger pocket on the hangboard. But he literally could not do a pull-up at that time. He had like no muscles on his body. Older climbers bemoaned his technique. It was kind of like the way they sort of slandered him. Um, he still had the body of a scrawny teenager, but what he possessed was something that climbing desperately needed at the time that wasn't obsessed with grades or numbers, calorie counting, or victories. Chris was amongst a handful of young rising stars that included Beth Rodden and Tommy Caldwell. And they just didn't take it seriously, even though they were doing really well. The competitions back then were mostly people in their 20s and 30s that were like trying to burn each other off and really grouchy. And they didn't, nobody realized that really young, young people could be super good climbers at that time. So you know, they didn't almost didn't take us seriously. At these competitions and at the crag, you know, the, the cool thing to do was to throw a temper tantrum when you fall. Here are these grown men and they fall off and they're kind of making a fool out of themselves, right? Like, you know, like no big deal, man, you fell off. Like, you know, we were just these teenagers and we were climbing circles around all these people and just having fun and, and not taking it as seriously. And I think that was a big change in climbing for sure. Beth, what was your memory of those years in the competition circuit? You know, back then it was like everyone was so skinny and like took it so seriously. And they had like these shoestring harnesses that were super light and like the tight spandex. And like it was all about being light. We were coming onto the scene and in this first generation of kid climbers, right? One moment stands out for Beth. And then Chris comes out and he's got like his baggy piranha pants on his baggy shirt on and he like kind of like bumbles through tying his knot and he climbs up and and he's like climbing out the roof and his like wallet and keys fall out of his pocket <laughs> like mid finals route at a world cup or something like that and the whole crowd is like <gasps> and he proceeds to go and like do the route and win the win the world cup but 
I feel like it's just like everyone was measuring things so seriously and like taking it so seriously. And like Chris forgets that he has his like wallet and his keys in his pocket. He was, he was miles better than anybody else. Not just a little bit better, but miles better. The real breakthrough trip for me in sport climbing was going to try and super tweak, which was the first 14B in the U.S. That was like a the first chance that I got to go travel the Western U.S. and check out all of these sport climbing areas. Me and Tommy were traveling with uh, Jim Thornburg and also Tommy's dad. Neither of us had driver's licenses yet. My dad was like the driver. And so we met in Logan Canyon, Utah. And he had climbed outside like four or five times before this, like barely at all. And then on that road trip, which was like two weeks long, he basically climbed all the 514s, all the hardest sport routes in the country, basically in two weeks. We went to Super Tweak, and then we went to Rifle, and we went to Wild Iris, doing throw, throwing the hula hand. We would go to a crag, and he would send the hardest route at the crag in like a couple of tries. And then I'd be left to try and spend a couple of days. And we would stick around until basically I just felt too bad for making him just belay me when he had already climbed everything. And then we'd move on to the next route. And then I guess climbing the VRG, climbing Necessary Evil, which at the time I guess was the, became the hardest route in the country. I remember when he established Necessary Evil, he almost named it Turd Burglar after Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> you cannot name the hardest route in the US turd burglar. <laughs> right after that, Just Do It, which had been the hardest route up until, up until that point. And I think from there, that was really when there was nothing else on the radar to try as far as sport climbing went in the US. Uh, can, can we just take a moment to acknowledge like how crazy this is? It's hard to come up with an apt comparison to Chris Sharma just climbing every hard route in America in a few weeks as a 15-year-old. I mean, it might be comparable to Tiger Woods going pro and basically winning winning the Masters straight away or something. I mean, you know, winning his first tournament. But even that doesn't really equate. It might be unprecedented that such a young person who's so relatively new to a sport has so thoroughly dominated that sport right from the get-go. It'll be interesting to see if anything like that ever happens again in the future, because it's certainly possible, but it's it's pretty hard to imagine. There's a photographer that was with us the whole time. Climbing Magazine subsequently posted an article about that trip, and that was like blasting us onto the scene. Around that time, 510 ran this ad that, that said climbing is now spelled Sharma. They were putting it out there, you know, like this guy was going to be the phenom. It was a very accelerated process. Now that I look back on it, like I did Necessary Evil, I'd barely been climbing for three years. So that was like a, a really, really fast progression. Nowadays, you have some kids that are in incredibly fast progressions as well. But I think especially, you know, we're talking the early 90s, that was really unheard of. From that point forward, it was clear that Sharma would be setting new standards. At the time, you know, the Europeans were way better than the Americans until Chris, basically. Like in terms of high-level sport climbing, high-level rock climbing, the Europeans were like miles ahead. While the debate over bolts had raged for more than a decade in the U.S., Across the Atlantic, European climbers had embraced sport climbing and its emphasis on athleticism over risk. 
Europe's featured limestone lent itself to difficult, steep, and fluid climbing. The bolts went in without debate, and standards rose. A few open projects, which many of the best climbers had tried but failed on, were open for the taking. Bolstered by sponsorship dollars and emerging climbing media, Sharma was free to go explore the edge of athletic possibilities across the world. Coming up after the break, Chris and Tommy go hitchhiking. European limestone was calling. Chris and Tommy both booked tickets. For two teenagers, it was an eye-opening trip. They were on their own, without parents, no real chaperones. Just a list of routes and crags to go explore. Uh, I met up with Tommy up in Fontainebleau. And I was following Tommy's lead too. Like Tommy had climbed a lot more than I had and knew a lot more about all these you know, different places in the history. So it was pretty cool for me to, to experience all that with him. I remember climbing a lot. We climbed in Volk, in uh, Oregon, all these kind of classic sport climbing spots uh, from the early 90s in the south so of France. We hitchhiked around, did a lot of sport climbing. And then towards the end of our trip, we did a World Cup circuit. We went to three World Cups. Chris like got first or second in all of them without even training indoors at all. The whole time we were just going climbing outside. That was kind of the only time I really did the, the World Cup circuit was that one season. And I I'd ended up winning the first World Cup I ever entered. In uh, one of your World Cup victories, wasn't it taken away for testing positive to weed or something like that? <laughs> well, yeah, something like that. Huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you forgot it was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Were they uh, were they habitually drug testing at World Cups back then? They were sometimes, but I think they they uh, had it out for me. I was definitely was not like the typical like athlete competitor, like, and so I think they they wanted to make an example of me. Um, You're sure they didn't just see you guys all smoking pot in isolation? That <laughs> <laughs> might have had something to do with it too. But. <laughs> That's classic. No, that's and so did that sour your experience with World Cups at all, or or were you just satisfied by having won a couple and calling it good? Yeah, no, it, it didn't really sour my my experience. You know, I think after I'd won a few competitions, that was enough for me. Like I never felt the idea like I needed to go and win the World Cup circuit ten times in a row or anything. You know, for me, the experience of kind of knowing that I could play that game and play it with the best of them that was that was enough. Around that time, I was really inspired by doing new routes because there was kind of this this clean slate. It was kind of your own own little world, right? When we were planning our trip to go to France, uh, I was planning on going out there with Jim Thornburg, the photographer. He had told me about this project, biography. And he said it was amazing. I think I'd seen some pictures from Arnaud Petit as well of him trying it and already kind of knew about this epic project. And so, yeah, I mean, that was literally the first route that I ever tried when I went to Seuss. I think we flew into Geneva or Lyon or something. We drove straight to Seuss and the next day hiked up there and went straight to biography. And I guess I was pretty hungry for, for trying to find hard routes back then and, and maybe a little bit cocky too, <laughs> probably. But yeah, that was kind of funny that like I didn't even warm up. I went straight on <laughs> that route. Originally, there was a a midway anchor and there was the extension and I climbed to the midway anchor in a couple days and then fell a bunch on the upper part, ended up going back there with Tommy and then took me another two trips over the next few years to finally complete it. The full biography. Sharma 
would rechristen the route Realization. It was the world's first 515. It had been 16 years since the first 514 was established in 1985, and many didn't think it was humanly possible to break into this new grade. In 2001, the fledgling internet carried the news across the international climbing community. In college dorm rooms with Ethernet, a new generation of climbing kids watched grainy footage of Sharma making history. Chris was no longer a spindly kid from California. Sharma's laid-back, half-fun, not-too-serious spirit, coupled with incredible athletic intensity, spread through climbing. He sort of changed the ideals. Everybody thought that maybe the most effective way was to not be too serious, climb the hardest thing you could, and try real, real hard outside, and that's what made you the best climber. I feel like the whole culture for a while shifted to that, and training became almost a little bit like looked down upon. Everybody just followed Chris. And it was not only that he was strong, he was he was like cool, he was he was sexy, he was funny, he had this like surfer vibe. He was, you know, climbers were just these like kind of vagabond dirtbags and he just he kind of had it all. Today, t- my son was asking me about like the speed of light and like, could we get to the speed of light? And I was talking about like the theoretical physicist basically saying like, probably not because like that last little bit will require so much energy. It's like you, we could come close, but we could never come quite that close. It just struck me as like that level of like, that's kind of how 515 feels. 515 feels <laughs> yeah, like totally, totally. From your standpoint, like, yeah, as as someone who's climbed fourteen plus, but not five fifteen, it's like yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, that last, yeah. uh, that last one grade, it really matters. Jesus, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I really... just wanted to rub it in. Yeah, no, 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 I appreciate that. Yeah, so I think the way to think about the grade five fifteen is that it's basically a grade that that you can't arrive at by chance. Basically, it gets exponentially harder as you get closer to the limits of human potential. Basically you really have to have that combination of a gift with incredibly hard work with, you know, years of dedication. Like nobody just climbs 515 by accident. And I, and I say that because, you know, I've been climbing for 25 years. I take it pretty seriously. I train hard and I like to think of myself as a pretty good climber and I've never climbed 515. And it's never been exactly a goal, but even if it was, you know, I don't totally know if I could, I don't know. I mean, basically, you're just really getting into the the most elite uh, realm of climbing. Dealing with fame and all of those things, it, it it takes time to learn how to deal with those things in a in a you know mature and healthy way. And it was it was a little bit weird and, and hard to understand and deal with. There's almost a downside to being a child prodigy as a climber. You know, if it comes too easily and you rise too quickly and then you're super famous as a kid, basically, you know, it really does change your relationship with the sport. But, you know, you could tell that that he certainly wasn't in it for the spotlight. I mean, he always sort of struggled with that as well, it seems like. You know, from when I was yet 19 to 21, climbing came really easy for me. And I think in, in some ways, like I didn't value it as much because it did come so easy. And so I think I really questioned a lot of things about it. At the same time, I had like a, a, a knee injury in that time. And that, that, that also really impacted my view on all of that stuff. It, it kind of took, I couldn't climb for a while. And it really made me take a step back and, and kind of look at climbing and life in a different way. You know, 
I saw it's maybe not the healthiest thing to put all of your eggs of happiness into just that one basket of succeeding as a climber, right? It made me really appreciate um, developing like a spiritual side or like a more of an inner peace, you know, and it, that really like embarked me on a new path in my life from when I was 20 to 22, 23. Like I, I continued to be a climber, but I was also mixing that with a lot of time not climbing. I was, I was traveling to meditation centers. I was traveling around India, around, all around Asia, studying meditation and Buddhism. And, and that was also something that really had a, a profound impact on, on my life and who I am. In that whole process of my like progression as a person, as a climber, and trying to make sense of who I was, I remember I was reading a, an article someone did of me back in the day about feeling pressured to go climb the hard sport, hardest sport routes in Europe. You know, like when I was just living in Bishop, like all I wanted to do was go out in the buttermilks and just do first ascents and go kind of like wander the, the wilderness and, and climb, right? And then there was this other side that's like, no, you need to go out and leave your mark and do these certain things to prove to people that you're the best right and so it's like the, the things that you want to do or the things that you should do to make a name for yourself or whatever are not necessarily always in in sync it's not always easy to mix business and pleasure i've seen actually a lot of people fall out of love with climbing once they became professionals because all of a sudden they get sponsored they have companies paying them and then they feel this huge pressure to yeah impress others or it's a fine balance to navigate all that Alex, uh, earlier when Chris was talking about growing up, he, he brought up the fact that his family studied under Baba Haridas. Do you know much about Baba Haridas? I know nothing about Baba Haridas except for the famous boulder problem in Squamish, which is named Baba Haridas, which I've done many times over the years. But uh, presumably it was done first by Chris and, and named after the Baba Haridas. But I always just thought it was a classic V7 slope traverse. So Baba Haridas... Uh, whose followers called Baba G, was one of the like a handful of people responsible for popularizing yoga in America. Um, if you've practiced yoga with any regularity in your life, you've done a movement sequence that Baba Haridas developed. Uh, he conceptualized and, and created and popularized prenatal yoga as a way to help women. He wrote several books that became sort of handbooks for yoga. Before he came to America, he was this ascetic you know, kind of this this uh, yogi who lived beneath a boulder, but somehow uh, a handful of academics in the United States heard about his teaching, and they ultimately convinced him to come to the States where he founded the school and learning center that Chris went to in Santa Cruz. The crazy part about all this is that from 1952 until he passed away in 2018, Baba Haridas never spoke a word. He took and followed a vow of silence. He communicated through his writing and a little chalkboard, and powered a whole spiritual and fitness movement that way, which is kind of insane. You know, Chris is not Baba Haridas. That's definitely not what I'm trying to suggest. But there is a through line in the way that Chris's climbing career unfolded. Chris is clearly a smart, thoughtful person who has his opinions, um, but he's always been soft-spoken, right? His fame, his influence, um, they came through the practice of climbing. He had this platform which aside from occasionally pointing out that it was kind of absurd how much um, people were fascinated by, by grades and numbers, um, you know, he, he never really treated that platform as a soapbox. But his climbing, 
it was spectacular. Like there's something about it, right? Like the yelling. It's it's almost animal. Totally. It's like if your fingers are infinitely strong like Chris's, you just get to do all these crazy things on rock that you're like, wow, that looks so incredible. Like imagine doing that. That'd be so fun. Swinging around on one hand and like jumping to other holes. You're just like, like, I mean, he approaches climbing with an intensity that, uh, you know, I don't want to say is unmatched, but when he climbs, he tries very hard, you know, way harder than most climbers. And he's consistently trying that hard. Like every time he goes to the crag, he's trying the hardest routes that he's can and he's trying them as hard as he, you know, he's putting his absolute physical max into each effort. You know, I've, I've actually only climbed with him a couple times or even seen him climbing a couple times, mostly because I don't climb hard enough to climb at the crags that he climbs on. But, uh, but I saw him climb in Oleana, which is like his home sport crag in Spain, where he was putting up some of the hardest routes in the world. And, you know, it's just a normal random day. He just hiked up to the crag in the afternoon, said hi to some of his friends, and then got on a route that I think was 13D to the middle and then 14C to the top. And basically, like, as his warm-up, I think he fell toward the top. But uh, I think it would have been the second ascent of this random 14C. And he basically did that as his warm-up, just, like, hiked up to the crag and was like, oh, yeah, here we go. And so when people think of Chris Sharma as being all relaxed and chill, you're like, yeah, he's pretty chill until he's warming up, going to the absolute death on 14C. You're like, that's pretty freaking hard. You know, that's like among the harder routes in the world. And that's his like first route of the day. Just that is insane. It was very impressive. We'll be back after the break. A very big turning point in my climbing in my life was when I came to Mallorca because I was trying to reconnect with climbing as much more of this meditative um, kind of artistic process. Coming to Spain and discovering deep water soloing, that was when I was able to kind of like come back to climbing in this really powerful new way. Deep water soloing is basically climbing above the ocean without a rope. It was like this blank canvas of rock where you can just climb wherever you want and it was just everything was ground up and it was kind of like, it's like super highball bouldering and then this whole element of the ocean like the most dangerous parts are actually once you're in the water if especially when there's like big surf and how you manage that and there's all these different aspects and uh in a way i think it it mixes the best parts of sport climbing bouldering and trad climbing too i mean it's it's very much an adventure like the places that i go like no one is there and it's very remote and it's very much has this alpine feel to it you know there's this big element of adventure um, going to these new spots in on the open ocean it combines all of those things in such a cool way except it's that it's not it's not exactly safe though is the thing that's that's what to me the bummer yeah. of deep water soloing is that you know you feel like it should be safe but it's kind of not because half the yeah. time falling into the ocean is terrible yeah, yeah i mean but i mean honestly i i really get off on that like i love like the adventure of all that side so i don't know i guess i i understand where you're coming from but but for me it's different <laughs> I don't, I don't really like uh, free soloing uh, greasy <laughs> granite slabs thousands of feet off the deck either. So, <laughs> Yeah, you know, we all, we all have our uh, personal taste in climbing. In the mid-aughts, Europe once again lured Chris in. On the sunny sea cliffs at Mallorca, he would establish dozens of cutting-edge deep water solos. The Espontes Arch, do yourself a favor and Google Sharma Arch, if you haven't ever seen it after you listen to this, was maybe the most beautiful. 
It would take 10 years before anyone successfully repeated it. In 2008, Sharma would again break a new grading barrier when he realized Randy Levitt's vision out at Clark Mountain with the world's first 515B, Jumbo Love. During those years, Chris would establish 16 515s, mostly in Spain, where he now lives with his family. In 2013, he would establish, alongside Adamandra, the world's first 515C. You know, basically, Adamandra winds up doing the first 15C in the world on a route that Chris bolted and that Chris sort of handed to him on a plate. You know, they worked on it together, and Chris very gracefully allowed the next generation to to carry on, you know? And, and I think that's really the the best you can hope for as a climber, you know? For three decades, Sharma led the athletic movement in climbing. We asked Tommy Caldwell to give us an overview. He dominated the competition scene. He put up the hardest sport route in the U.S., then he put up the hardest sport route in Europe, then he you know, started putting up the hardest boulder problems in the world, and then he popularized the sport of seco block, um, you know, deep water soloing, and then he moved to Spain, and I, I would say was the mastermind behind developing the best hard climbing areas in the world now. Listen to that, you hear a story of an athlete relentlessly evolving for over two decades. Chris Sharma is our Serena Williams, our LeBron James, our Tom Brady. Chris Sharma was for the very small climbing world that same sort of star. You know, somebody who could who could reach past the edges of the sport almost and sort of make it cool in a way that it previously hadn't been. Their games all evolved with time. Their dominance does not. You know, for me, if I just see some chunk of rock that doesn't look very cool, um, even though it might be the hardest route in the world, it doesn't really inspire me. Because, I mean, I love trying hard routes. Like, I'm absolutely inspired and, and more psyched than ever to try projects and stuff. But it gets to a certain point where it's kind of repeating the same process. These, you know big milestone experiences in our lives. We really have to like fully reinvent ourselves and, and think outside the box to this whole new level. With the mandala, with biography, with a lot of my first ascents, like I didn't grade them. It's extremely hard to, to put a grade on these climbs because there's so many other factors um, be, besides just the climbing. It really is about the, the personal experience and pushing through like our personal boundaries and of course having fun and of course, it is an amazing activity, but it isn't that profound, you know? It's like we're not finding the cure for cancer out there. Like, we're going climbing because it feels good, because it makes us happy. One of the things I, I, I say to people, depending on, on our attitude and how we approach things, we can transform them into the, the greatest or the worst experiences. You know, we could go to a really crappy chassis little boulder you know and that's why i have some of the best experiences from climbing around santa cruz just these little little tiny little boulders but you go with the right attitude good friends and you have an amazing time and suddenly that boulder is transformed into this amazing thing and vice versa you could go to a place like Seyus or yosemite or something and have a bad attitude and it doesn't matter that you're in the best place in the world you transform that place into a bad place it really depends on how we approach everything in life. And I think it's important to remember that climbing is much more than a sport. Of course, it's great that it is a sport. It's so cool that it's in the Olympics. But climbing is a portal to like so many amazing experiences beyond just you know winning or getting a, a gold medal or something like that. 
Climbing Gold is a production of Duck Cape Thin Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. This episode was written and edited by me, Fitzcahal, and Alex Park. Music today by Brendan O'Connell, Amy Stolzenbach, and Cordelia Zars, who also collaborated with me on the original pieces and mixed the episode. Art direction by Anya Miller. A big thanks to Chris and his family for making the space so that we could chat with us while they were in lockdown in Barcelona. I love how you can occasionally hear one of the kids in the background. Glad we've moved on to better times. Our executive producers for Duct Tape Them Beer are Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call, and from RXR Sports, Jonathan Redsick and Ben Endy. You can follow us on Instagram at Duct Tape Them Beer or Alex Honnold. Follow us on Spotify to listen for free or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please spread the word or write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.